Thank you, Anne, for that wonderful reminder this morning. Children, you may be dismissed. Make haste. Get out of here. Adults, you may turn to James chapter 5. Make haste. Bible drill. No kidding. James chapter 5, our last week in this series on James. And today, we are going to talk about a quality of the New Testament church that we often don't talk about because it's a little bit prickly. But in this study of James, we would be remiss not to mention it. In fact, when we conceived this study a couple of months ago, we really wanted to bring this message, but we wanted to make sure it took place in a proper place because it's a topic that James is so troubled by that he mentions it three different times during the book. He brings it up three times, so we could have interspersed it uh, anywhere we really chose because he talks about it in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 5, but uh, there's a section in chapter 5 here that we can, uh, that we can talk about, and what we're going to do today is work our way backwards, chapter 5, then chapter 2, and then chapter 1 to talk about this subject When you read about this subject in James, you can feel that James has a lot of passion towards the subject that we're going to talk about. And to make matters worse, dear old James uses really hardened, painful language to address the topic that we are going to talk about today. What's this topic, you might ask? The rich and the poor. How should Christians conduct themselves when some of them have money and some of them don't? Yuck. This is a prickly subject. It's a subject that is not comfortable to talk about. Talk about anything but my money, dude, right? Don't talk about what's going on with my pocketbook or what's not in my pocketbook. But James is convinced that his audience needs some remediation on Christian attitudes towards what we would call socioeconomic status among its members. And like I said, to do this study justice, we must travel to all three places where James mentions it in the book. And there's three basic lessons about wealth, three basic lessons here about the rich and the poor. And I'm going to give them to you right now for those of you who are taking notes, and then we're going to see how the scriptures are going to explore these topics. First, don't use your wealth to exploit others and show just how silly and selfish you really are. That's the first thing. Don't use your wealth to exploit others and and show just how silly and selfish you really are. Two, As we work backwards in the book today, we will see, don't use your wealth or lack thereof to designate status among yourselves. Don't use your wealth or lack thereof to designate status amongst yourselves. And third, don't use your wealth or lack thereof to cut out, and we're just going to leave it there because we'll get there when we get to the third passage, but you right now are in James chapter 5, and I'd like you to read some of the most beautiful scripture in all of the Word of God with me. You don't have to read it out loud. Just look down at your Bible or look up on the screen. You'll be amazed at the beauty of this passage. Verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be evidence to you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. What a beautiful passage. 
I read that and I get warm and I get the goosebumps all at the same time because James is really being so gentle in the way that he handles. Isn't it interesting that we learned last week that the child of wisdom is gentleness? Apparently James didn't feel like that applied to rich people. He is really bringing it, isn't he? It seems almost vitriolic. And what he begins to describe here in chapter 5 is about the worst case scenario for what you can do with your wealth. That is, what a silly way to live if you just keep hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and hoarding and taking in and bringing in and trying to insulate yourself against all the troubles of life with money. It doesn't make any sense to do that. Isn't that a New Testament theme if we ever saw one? That it makes no sense to just take all your time to amass and store wealth and, and, and be involved in nothing but pleasure. That does not make sense at all. There's a great movie that was made back in the 30s, and I love to watch it every now and again. It's called You Can't Take It With You. How many of you ever seen that movie? Jimmy Stewart. Yes, yes, some of you, yeah. It's a wonderful movie, and the whole idea is you start with this family who is absolutely loony. Everybody in this household does weird stuff, and they're just different, to, say the, to, to put it mildly. And everybody just sort of does what they want to do, and they're not really interested in money or wealth or, or accruing any of that, but they just sort of do what they do when they get by. Well, eventually, the young lady from this family falls in love with one of the richest guys in town, or the son of one of the richest guys in town. And it's a comedy because the son, with his parents, comes and visits the daughter with her parents, and it gets a little weird. Because you have the height of these people who really don't care about money, really don't care about wealth, really don't care about status, with the richest people in town. And in essence, what's so funny is these people who look so weird and strange, who have nothing, turn out to be the wise ones. And the people who have everything, everything at, 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 their, foot, at their feet because of the money and the wealth and the extravagance and the status with which they live, end up being the foolish ones. Even Hollywood can tell some good stories. Because the people who originally looked crazy were the ones who really had it together. You should watch, you can't take it with you if you get a chance. You see, the Bible's clear on this topic. The silly ones are the ones that are amassing and hoarding wealth, and the ones who really have some happiness and joy and some excitement to their lives are the ones who don't spend their whole life doing that. Now, I'm not saying that because I want to say that. I'd like to amass some wealth myself, you know? I mean, we all would like to insulate ourselves against some of the things of life, wouldn't we? I mean, that's a good idea. I mean, half the congregation here has taken Financial Peace University, haven't you? You want to amass a little wealth? You want to protect yourself against some of the hardships of life? You want to, you want to take a trip to Bermuda before you die, right? But on the, well, not Gene, but everybody else, right? <laughs> Why not, Gene? Anyhow, you want to do some things in this life that are pleasurable, and the Bible's not against that. The Bible's not against uh, being wise with your finances. The Bible isn't even against being wealthy. What's the Bible against? That being the concept that drives you, that, be, that being the thing that, that makes life tick, is that money in the bank, is the pleasures that you can afford for yourself. That's not a way to live. That's a foolish way to live. James goes one step further here in chapter 5, and he begins to talk about exploitation. Now, we're in a congregation, and I mean this sincerely. This is not meant to be sarcastic in any way. I doubt that many people here are in the business of exploiting people. I doubt that most of us are in the business of fraud in order to amass our own wealth. Then again, there might be a couple of people in the room who have committed a little fraud, who have amassed a little wealth at the expense of others. And it's interesting that James is writing to Christians, and he has the sense that there may be some people who are less than honest in their dealings with other people. 
Now, the commentators would tell you that what James is referring to when it talks about these harvesters who have mowed the field, the commentators would tell you that we're looking back to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 29. And those chapters are talking about the idea that somebody who is rich and has a lot of laborers should never hold their pay till the next day. Because the people who need need that money for working today need to go buy some food for their family after their work is done. And so the commentators would say that, that this is an allusion to the Old Testament where the Bible says in two places, don't hold the wage of the workers till, the end, till tomorrow, but give them to them that day so they can feed their families. Now, I don't know if I get that from reading that. He just seems to say anything that you've done that's fraudulent, anything that you've done where you've held back that which you owe somebody is not to be done. We are supposed to be people of generosity, not people of hoarding. And like I said, I doubt that many of us today are defrauding the poor, but I do imagine a couple of us could live a little leaner in the day of slaughter. I don't imagine many of us are exploiting people, and if you are, stop. There's not a lot of mercy and grace for that in the kingdom of God. Read Jesus, James, Paul, and Peter. They'll get you, right? Not a lot of of grace for those who would defraud the poor. Oh, don't even even read the prophets if you're frauding or you're interested in fraud. Don't do it. You just don't oppress people, but I doubt that so many of us are living in there, but I do imagine that some of us could live a little leaner in the day of slaughter, that we would look to bless others rather than to, than to hoard, rather than to take in. I don't know that Christians should be the ones always trying to drive the hard bargain. I don't know that we should always be the ones so proud of ourselves for getting something that's so cheap a cost. I remember going on a mission trip years ago to the Dominican Republic, and I, uh, Bill was with us, and Bill said, listen, you can drive these people, if you didn't say this, Bill, just pretend like you did, you can drive the people in the market down to a certain point where they're not making any money, but they're just trying to move their wares. Wouldn't you rather be the person that barters, because that's what they do in the DR, wouldn't you rather be the person that barters but also blesses this poor person sitting here at, at, at the market? Wouldn't you rather be that person than the one that says, hey, look at this blanket I got for $2, you know? where we can actually look at somebody who made that blanket by hand and doesn't have a lot, and we can say, you know what, we paid four because we didn't need to drive them down to their lowest price in order for us to be happy. I think some of us could live a little bit leaner in the day of slaughter. There's a show on the History Channel that's based around a pawn shop. Maybe you've seen it. And I just love watching it because you see these guys get into this battle of wills with people trying to drive their price so far down. And then they're going to take that, whatever they bought from those people, and mark it up 100 or 120 or 200 percent. And I think, I don't think Christians should be in the pawn business. You know? We should be looking to make some equitable trades here. Equitable things. We should be, we should be people who don't live... Uh, heavy in the day of slaughter. We don't fatten ourselves in the day of slaughter. We should be people who are okay with living a little bit leaner if we can bless other people. Amen? Yeah, I don't, I don't call for a lot of amens, but I called for one today. Turn with me a few pages back to chapter 2 now, and let's get to our second point. Remember, number one is we don't exploit others and show just how silly and selfish we are. Point number two today, we don't use our wealth or lack thereof to de- designate status among ourselves. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you wish with your acts of fa- do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? 
For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while you instruct the one who is poor and say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Once again, I find this fascinating because James is writing to Christians. And the interesting thing that so many of us can do is we can get in this place where we designate status immediately by sight. We can look at somebody and say, I see the the clothes that they're in. I know who they are, and I'm going to treat them a little bit more respectfully or a little bit less respectfully by the clothes that they're wearing or the haircut that they have or the bag that they carry or the shoes that they wear or the car that they drive. And we do this. It's part of our human nature. We live in a country that doesn't have a caste system, if you will. We don't live in a country where we designate status just by money. But we certainly can do this in our own private thoughts and in the, in the way that we treat people. I was talking with Pastor Cindy about this this week, and it's not even so much that we look at somebody who is ragged and lowly and treat them badly so much as we identify with somebody who looks a little bit more like us. And maybe we say to ourselves, you know what, maybe I don't quite dress like him or quite dress like her, but I aspire to. Therefore, that's the person I'm going to gravitate towards. But James is clear here that Christians should be money blind. We hear all the time that we as, as, as educated and loving people should be color blind, but Christians should be color blind and money blind. It was interesting, we took communion this morning, and James chap- or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we often talk about that passage, don't take communion in an unworthy manner. Well, there's a context for that. What was taking place in Corinth was all the rich folks were getting together and having a dinner before the communion service, but they weren't inviting the poor folks. So all the rich people were getting together because they could afford it and they wouldn't look bad sitting at a table with other rich folks, but they weren't inviting the poor people after dinner, after everybody was full. They said, all right, guys, you can come in now. Let's all have communion. Let's all celebrate communion, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. It was silly, and Paul was furious with them for it. In fact, one of the major things that Jesus does throughout his ministry is make sure that the concept of table fellowship, the people that you spend time with around the table, don't all have to look alike or don't all have to have a certain status. You know the great thing about Jesus was? That he looked at his disciples and he says, you know what, when you go into a dinner party and they're, they're sitting people as far as their status, richest to poorest at the table, go ahead and sit where the poor people sit. I don't care if you got money or not. It doesn't matter that you're a disciple of Jesus, that you've cast out demons, that you've done miracles. It doesn't matter who you are spiritually. Go sit in the lowest place of the table. Let's show them that this whole concept of status based on money is crud. Let's show them, let's, let's show these people that not in the kingdom of God, that everybody has value here. Don't designate among yourselves based on who wears what, who drives what, whose house is big and whose house is small. We are not to be people like that. We are to be money blind. We're to see everybody as a child of God. That's who we're supposed to be as Christians. We're not supposed to be people who look at others and say, that's what I want to aspire to. We should look at others and say, God, who would you have me minister to? 
Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. What does associate with the lowly and claim to be wiser than what you are have to do with one another? I bet you figured it out since I asked the question. Didn't you? I won't explain it. I don't need to. You figured it out. You're smart people. Don't be haughty people. Associate with everyone. That's what Jesus did. Think about this for just a moment. Jesus went and had dinner with the Pharisees and the rich folks, didn't he? He sat at their table. And he also had dinner with the prostitutes and people who had no social status whatsoever, didn't he? So did Jesus have it against, something against the rich necessarily? No. He was revolutionary because he didn't have anything against the poor. Jesus was money blind. Didn't matter. Everybody was a child of God. And those Pharisees needed Jesus just as much as the prostitutes did. So I'm not trying to look at you today and say, well, you don't need to associate with the rich. And if there's rich people in our church, they can go to a richer church. We're going to be middle class, darn it. You know? No. That's not it at all. The great thing about the early Christians and Christians today is the people who are millionaires can, can be in the same fellowship and love each other with the people that are making $16,000 a year. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. The early Christians, th this, was, this is what made the Romans so angry. Now, when you read the New Testament, for the most part, it's, it's, it's the Jewish synagogues that are oppressing the early Christians, but just on the other side of the New Testament, we see a lot of Roman persecution. You know what made the Romans so mad? They thought the Christians were being subversive to the system because the slaves would eat with the masters. Did you catch it? We're supposed to be subversive. We're not supposed to have, have, have a class system. It's supposed to go across the spectrum. It doesn't matter how much money you have. I don't care, and you shouldn't care how much money I have. What matters is that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Amen. And everybody gets the same treatment in that. John Maxwell, the great teacher on leadership, former pastor, relates a great story. He said there was a very rich gentleman in his church that was very upset with the way that he was leading the church and the direction that he was leading the church to. And this very rich gentleman had some <laughs> incredible tithe money, if you catch my drift. The church needed this dude's money to, to, continue to continue to function. God didn't, but the church did. Catch, catch what I'm throwing there? Now, this man comes up after church to John one day, and he says, I am sick of the direction that you're taking this church, and I am going to withhold my tithes until you stop this. And John said, you know what? I really don't deal with the money here, uh, but I will take you to the one who does. And the man said, all right, I'd like to talk to him. And so John said, well, let's go. Now, this was a senior pastor talking to one of his very rich parishioners. He says, all right, let's go. And so they went down the hall, and they went right into John's office. And the guy says, well, nobody's here. And he says, what I'd like you to do is kneel down with me. And the man says, what do you, what do you mean? He said, I'm going to kneel down and pray. That's the one that we're talking to right now. He's the one who deals with the church finances. Tell him that you're going to withhold your tithe. He was a, he's a smart guy. Anyhow... You know what? The point here is people who maybe have some money or have some success in this life, it's very easy to let that money or success turn your head in a wrong direction. Very easy. The moment you get a little something, the moment you have something nice where before you didn't have something nice, it's real easy to turn your head and get you thinking in some unwise ways, in some haughty ways. And the real question is, will we let our pride fall down and realize that, whether we have money or not, we're to be money blind.
And in the same way, those of you who maybe don't have two nickels to rub together, you're not supposed to look at anybody else in your congregation and go, I can't associate with them. Look at the way they dress. You say, I, I could never approach that person. Did you see the shoes they were wearing? No. No. We're the family of God. We're the family of God. We're the family of God. That's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people who are money blind, and we don't give people preferential treatment based on finances. Did you catch that John Maxwell didn't? I have a feeling that if one of the poorest people in the church said, I'm going to withhold my tithe, he could have used the same line, couldn't he have? Couldn't he have? Turn one more place with me this morning, and this is our final point. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is the first time that James mentions it in the book, and as you know, we've been working backwards. Don't use your wealth or lack thereof to cut out your need for God. Let's read. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low. Because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. In the same way with the rich, in the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Now, at this point, if you have any money in the congregation, you're probably thinking, what is James trying to do to me? Because James is not being very kind, if you will, to anybody with some means. And that's really not the point here. The point here is not so much about how much money you have. The point is about how do you feel about that money that you have? How do you work with that money that you have? You know what? Christians need rich people in their congregations. We do. It's true. Didn't you read Acts? Did you read Acts? Do you remember that the early church had said, that whenever anybody had need in the early church, somebody with some wealth would go and like sell a field. And then they'd say, all right, who needs something? Did you catch that? So the early church wasn't like, you're rich, you can't be a part. No. No, instead the early church was blessed by people who had lived diligently and who had been given success in this world and had used their talents to make money. And then they said, God, whatever I have is yours. Whatever I have is yours. And that's the attitude that the church needs from those with wealth. And in the same way, the attitude that the church needs with those without wealth is, God, you are my supplier, and I am not going to let anybody look down on me because I don't have much. Look at what it says. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up. Now, if we're not supposed to have social status in the church, that can't mean social status, can it? No. What does it mean? Being raised from the place that we're at because God takes care of us. So for those who don't have money, who don't have two nickels to rub together in this place, you should glory in the fact that God is your supplier. And God meets your need. Some of you could write books on how God raised you up when you were lowly. And that's the beautiful thing about being lowly. It is a good thing to need something from God. And that's the message to both the rich and the poor today. Don't ever put yourself in a position that you don't need from God. Because where's room for faith then? If you're perfectly content, something's wrong. 
I said that to a friend on the phone last night. We were talking, he, he attends another church, and we were talking about ministry. And, and we just said, you know what? You never want to get to the place where you're content because then you don't need anything from God. And so people with wealth in here today, people with some money in here today, I want to, I want to admonish you. Where do you need God? Certainly you don't need God to supply your needs for a car or a home or your gas bill. Where some others in the congregation would need God to supply for their car or their home or their gas bill. But where do you need God? Where are you stepping out in faith? And that's the question here that, that, that's, that's the problem because there's a very easy propensity with wealth to allow your riches to become a place of haughtiness. And that haughtiness then can turn into a place where you don't listen to God. But God wants you to listen. And I want to be clear here this morning. We read the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. And if you read the entire Bible, wealth is a sign of God's favor. Did you know that? Wealth is a sign of God's favor. So when you see James in heaven, be like, I really appreciate your warnings to me. But what a blessed life I led. Thank you, God. This is not to look at you who, who have a, a wealth and have amassed wealth and go, what's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a sign of God's favor. That's not a bad thing. The issue that the New Testament wants to raise and wants to keep us clear on is this, that wealth makes it tougher to remain in a place of faith. Wealth makes it tougher to remain in a place where God can move in your life and you can listen to his voice. Now, you can come at me later if you're a wealthy person and say, I don't know if that's true. I have some wealth and it hasn't made it tougher at all. Well, I'm just reading the word of God. I mean, I'm just reading the scriptures. I'm not trying to say that. I am yet to be wealthy, all right? Maybe someday I will amass some wealth, but I'm not a wealthy man today. But I know if I amass some wealth in this life, that's going to make it easier, according to the scriptures, for me to not listen to the voice of the Lord. And what I'm going to have to pray constantly to the Lord is, Lord, let my pride fall down. Because everything in our culture and everything that the enemy has set up in his rulership of this world says that money is success, and money is wisdom, and money is where it's at. And everything you say in your system in the kingdom of God says money has nothing to do with that. The heart that is submitted to Jesus Christ and his good works his success, his true wealth. That's the issue here. So I don't want any of you to hear today that Pastor Matt dislikes rich people. I know a lot of rich people that you would never know that they're rich. They're wonderful people without pretension and realize that it's better to be of lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. But those of you today who are here and who take pride in your lowly status. I don't want you to ever be that person who says, you know what? I don't belong here or there in the kingdom of God because of what I don't have. You belong. You belong. You belong. You might say, I, I, I don't fit the mold. You belong. You know, it's so funny, as a pastor, I've heard all of these things said. Well, I, I don't belong because I'm, I'm single. Well, I don't, I don't belong because I'm married and I don't have children. Well, I don't belong because I'm married and I have children and there's nobody else my age that has that. And I don't belong because I'm married and I have adult children. 
We are so busy trying to say why we don't belong rather than to say to the Lord, Lord, what's my place? What part of the body am I supposed to fill? You know what? You might not have all of the people of the same socioeconomic status as you do sitting around you today, but you're part of the family of God, and you belong here. And God has work for you to do both in this body and without, regardless of how much money is in the bank, regardless of how well healed you are. God wants all of us to submit our lives to him and say, God, I want to stand in faith for you. And I want to do what you would have me do in this earth. And I realize that wealth or no wealth doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm hanging with the rich or the poor. I have work to do in the kingdom of God. That's how the Christian treats being rich and being poor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for someone like James who, when inspired by the Holy Spirit, would write even the hard things. God, I pray today for us that we would divorce ourselves from any concept of wealth being wisdom as, as wealth being or a lack of wealth being a lack of wisdom. I pray that we would not have divisions among us based on where we stand financially. But instead, Lord, I pray that each one of us in a real way would say, Lord, let my pride fall down. doesn't matter if I have a lot or a little. I'm your child. I belong. And I have work to do in your kingdom. God, help us to all come to you like little children. Ones who don't care about what we have, but just want to sit at the feet of Jesus and do what he instructs. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.